Mike Cosper, in his book, uh, Recapturing the Wonder, um, began one of his chapters with this story where he talked about um, going into his parents' brand new church. And this was a, a brand new mega church in the U.S. So I don't know if you've ever been to a mega church in the U.S., but some of them are like super big. This was one that had like a sanctuary that could seat uh, 8,000 people, I think he said. So just this huge mega structure. You know, goes in and the parking lot is kind of like Disneyland or something, right? There's like carts taking people around and then you go in and it's like going to some fancy you know, theatrical production or something. And then you sit down and the service is just amazing. Lights everywhere. And, you know, the worship band is totally in tune. And, and the author, Mike, was just like, wow, this is pretty amazing. And his parents, too, were like, this is stunning. This is so good. And um, somewhere along the line, he said there was like this massive cross, you know, like kind of picture this one here, a huge cross. He describes it as like, Two stories tall, okay? It's just like massive. And maybe it was. I, I don't know. But he said partway through like one of the songs, behind the cross, like uh, a light started to shine behind it. And then as the song was kind of raising in crescendo to like its, its you know, peak, um, it, the cross was all lit up from behind with like a red light. And it was just like everybody was like, oh, this is amazing. You know, they were just wowed by it. And so after the service... Um, when they were having lunch together, uh, Mike was just talking and asking his dad, what do you think about the service? And his dad was like, it was amazing. And did you see the cross during the song? It was lighting up. And um, Mike's like, yeah, that was pretty cool. And um, his dad was like, do you think it was like lit by lights or was it something else? You know, kind of dot, dot, dot. And Mike's like, what do you mean, like a miracle or something, you know? And his dad was like, I don't know, like I'm just asking, you know? He was asking, he was kind of like caught up in the moment. And, and the author was thinking like, is, you know, my dad is like a, a rational kind of thinking person, you know? He's a believer. He was, a, he was an engineer who designed um, tarmacs for runways, so he's not like kind of caught up in the hype of something, but he is like, he thinks like maybe this was like a miracle or something that happened. And what surprised Mike was, after thinking about that, it wasn't so much that uh, his dad thought that a miracle could have happened that Sunday morning. What Mike was surprised about, actually, was the fact that he had no place in his own life for the miraculous or for the wondrous, okay? And you might think, okay, lights behind a cross? Come on, man. But basically, what Mike was getting at was that in his life, he had lost in many ways a sense of wonder and a sense of majesty of what God could and does do around him and around us on any given day. And I don't know about you, but have you ever experienced moments in your own life where you have experienced this kind of wonder or this kind of majesty? Maybe, you know, you've seen like the birth of a child or something and you're like, whoa, this is this is amazing. A child has just been born here. New life has been brought in. Or maybe you were, you know, somewhere where the stars were shining so brilliantly and you were just like caught in the awe of the moment. Psalm 8 is trying to get us to think about that very thing. The majesty and the wonder and the magnificence of God. 
So if you have a Bible or if you have a phone, please turn to Psalm 8. And we've been saying this now for five weeks in, the row, in, a, in a row, but we have been going through all these lament and all these uh, dark psalms, and now we come to Psalm 8, and it is a psalm of praise. It is a psalm, you know, where the psalms of lament are these psalms of disorientation, of confusion, and of darkness. Psalms of praise are meant to be psalms of orientation that set us in the right direction, that lay a foundation for us so that we can actually move forward with confidence in in God and in in the wonder of who God is and his majesty. And so Psalm 8 begins by by getting us to think about the glory of God. And there's a lot of other scriptures that help us think about the glory of God. One of the ones that that I think of often, and maybe you do as well, is in Revelation 4, where you get this image of God's glory, and it's, I mean, it's the, the end God kind of bringing to close, you know, all that's happening on, on the world stage and the timeline of the world, and it says this, and the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you our Lord and God to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. And this is where David actually gets us started in Psalm 8 with this very same kind of picture of the glory of God for us to observe and to take in. And so look at Psalm chapter 8, verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. And if you look down at verse 9, it's, it's basically the same thing. It's a repeat. It says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So there's your clue that that's really what the point of this psalm is. Okay, when he opens with something and he ends with the same thing, that's kind of the driving theme of this psalm. And it is the glory of God. And he begins with the name of God. Okay, so the, it's the glory of God, but he begins with a, uh, a personal side of God. So he begins with, O Lord, our Lord, which in your Bible you should see it says, O Lord, we, we talked about this before, it's the the personal name of God, right? it is Yahweh, capital L, capital O, capital R, and capital D. So Yahweh, and then our Lord is just kind of a repeat, which is just, it's the word our master, okay? So the, you know, perfect God, the creator of everything is, you know, ruler over everything, but he is deeply personal. So you've got these two ideas coming together in the first verse that God is to be glorified. We glorify him with our lives, and he is glorified by all that's around us. Yet at the same time, he is deeply personal. He is close to us, and he wants to be near to us. This name for God is seen also in Exodus 33, and I can't remember if I included those verses in the text here. 
or in the slide, but in Exodus 33, Moses is leading the children of Israel, and he's going to take them into the promised land, and he's having this dialogue with God, and he wants God to go with him, okay? So he says, man, we cannot go forward unless you come with us. And he says, like, I want to know who you are. If you're going to lead us, I want to know who you are and so that I can relay that to people and that we can have confidence in you. So Exodus 33:17 says this, And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by, by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And I think that's a typo, actually. Okay, so it should be all capitalized, L-O-R-D. God says to Moses, here's what I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you my personal name, Yahweh. That's who's going with you. God who rules over you, God who takes care of you in all ways, but a God who is deeply personal. And so when David here begins with the glory of God, he begins by saying, this, this God is, he's our master, he is our creator, he's our maker, but he's deeply personal. He's one who wants to be in relationship with us. So he's not like other gods who are distant who you have to appease, who you have to, you know, you got to do thing, everything right, even though the law kind of seems to suggest that way. But the law actually is always pointing to a God who wants to be in relationship with his people, a God who wants to be deeply personal with them. So you've got this personal, intimate uh, God who we glorify and who we see is actually glorified in the heavens around us, and he he helps us understand the idea of glory because glory is it's not just something that you can describe, you know. You can't just say it's like this thing and you kind of explain all the parts, you know. If it's a microphone or something, you can explain all the parts of it. Glory is like, like how do you describe glory? Well, the psalmist here actually helps us by giving us two examples, okay? And the first one is babies. Look at verse 2. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. He begins by actually pointing to babies and infants, okay? So we've got some in the room here that actually help us understand that. And, and it's kind of actually a little bit confusing because you're like, how does a baby help us understand the glory of God? You'd think if it was the glory of God that it would be something like, like powerful, like a volcano or something, right? Or I don't know, something like majorly strong that would be like, this is the glory of God. But he says, actually, no, it's babies and infants that help us understand the glory of God. And the reason is that because throughout Scripture, God often and regularly shows us that he is, he's not actually thinking the way we're thinking. He thinks the opposite of us often. We think of strength, and he actually thinks of accomplishing his purposes through weakness. And so throughout the narratives, if you think of it, you think of Jacob and Esau and how God ends up choosing like the, the younger one. Or you think of Joseph, who is you know, one of the youngest sons and is sent off to slavery 
and God ends up using him. Or we think of even David, right? Who is this young kid who is just out in the fields and he is the one who's selected to be king. Or Jesus, God in the flesh. We think about this at Christmas time, who comes down to be incarnate, to be with us. And we think, how does this work? Well, God regularly shows us that through weakness, through the, the small things, he actually accomplishes his purposes. Through the small little things, we actually get glimpses of the glory of God. And Jesus actually uses this idea of infants kind of praising his name to um, to explain to the religious leaders what's going on. So if you, even you can look in um, Matthew 21, we're not going to read any of the text, but in Matthew 21, you've got this amazing story where Jesus cleanses the temple. Okay, we know that story well. He comes in and he flips the temple tables, all the money changers, they're selling all these goods. They've made it into a marketplace. He's got his whips. He's driving people out of the, the temple there. And he's just like causing chaos. But then if you follow the story, it actually says around like verses 13, 14 that he begins to heal people. Okay, so he does this, the religious work that is becoming a system of oppression for the people there. He destroys and takes down. And then what he does is he heals and brings life and restoration to people. And in that context, the religious leaders are watching that and they're seeing that. And when that happens... When people are healed, when people are brought to restoration, it says the the children begin to praise him. They begin to cry out, Hosanna. They They actually see what's happening here. The Messiah has come, and they can see what's going on. They're actually witnesses to this. And so then it says this in verse 16. And this is the, um, the religious leader saying to Jesus. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? They're talking about the children who are crying Hosanna because of what Jesus is doing. He's saying, they're saying, do you hear what these are saying? What are they expecting Jesus to say? Yes, I hear what they're saying and they're wrong. I'm just a human. I'm just a religious teacher. I'm just a rabbi. Because they're thinking, they're saying that you are the Messiah. Jesus says to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise. So Jesus actually pulls from Psalm 8 and says, what they're doing here, David was talking about in Psalm 8. That young children actually would understand before religious, before educated people, that the Messiah was in their midst, that babies would actually even cry out, that, you know, that these young infants would cry out and would acknowledge that the Messiah has come. And so what Jesus is also saying is that that Yahweh, remember verse 1, that Yahweh that David is talking about in Psalm 8, that is Jesus. That's who's in their midst. That's who's before them. The glory of God in the person of Jesus is there. And we know from the rest of the story that they're like, I don't think so. Uh-uh. We're not believing this. But the kids get it. And so through actually children, not through like, not through naivete, not through being tricked, not through being, you know, um, coerced in any way, but the psalmist is saying that there is a side of the glory of God that young children can actually teach us. They're, they're like 
open to what God is doing around them and they can acknowledge his glory because of his handiwork. So it starts with infants and babies, but then he goes on to talk about nature itself. Okay, so he says this, When I look at your heavens, verse 3, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? So the second example for us to get the glory of God is actually the world that we've been given, this natural world around us. Now, as humans, we are looking around the universe for a planet like Earth. Okay, that's what like all kinds of countries are sending satellites out and we're hoping to maybe get to Mars someday, which isn't even close to what we have here, but they're searching the universe for a planet like ours and maybe someday they'll find one. Who knows? That'd be fantastic. That'd be great. Find another Earth and maybe people will even go there. But as of right now, as of today, this planet and a planet like this that can sustain us as people is the only thing that God has given to us. And it is meant to get us to think about the glory of God through all the diversity of what we have here on this planet. And so scientists continue to like, look all over the world to find all kinds of different things and animals and plants. Um, in, in 2012, actually, they found the nano-chameleon. Have you seen this thing before? Nano-chameleon, okay? This is the smallest reptile that they've ever found, and they found it on the island of Madagascar. There's a reason why they didn't find it, right? It's so small. And they only came up with a paper on it this year because they needed to study their, like, does this thing grow bigger? Like, it, did we find it at its max size? Or, you know, and they're trying to study, like, what does the male and the female look like? And how do they mate and all that kind of stuff? And so, you know, it took all kinds of years to figure it out. But this tiny thing exists. And so every year we keep finding more and more things within the planet. Then we also look out, right? We look out with telescopes and we see the universe around us. And so all of these things actually are there for our benefit as humans to, you know, to enjoy and to, to look at. But they're also there as clues, as indicators to the glory of God. And Laura read these verses, this verse before in Romans 1.20. It says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that the people are without excuse. So the nano-chameleon is actually there to get us thinking about the glory of God. Amazing that God could create these things so that we could like discover them and find them and then just discover more and more and more. It's the glory of God. And nature actually, it, it's this like picture for us to see so that we can acknowledge that, wow, God has actually made all these things. But David doesn't stop there, okay? David begins verses 1 through 4, kind of getting us to see about the, the, the glory of God and, you know, seeing it through these different points of view. But now he comes to the image of God. In verse 5, he turns towards man. So verse 5 of chapter 8 says this, You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. 
So at the end of verse 4, he talked about, you know, like in all of creation, with all the diversity that's out there, and all the, the magnitude of the stars and the universe, you know, what are people? You know, really, when, have you ever done that when you're flying and you look down and you're like, man, we are just tiny. Yeah, we've made like cities and stuff, but we are just tiny beings. And that's what David is asking, like, people. Like, what's with people? What's so unique about people? Then he answers that question and he says, what's unique is that we are made in the image of God. So we are different from the, the animal kingdom, okay? We are different from the plant kingdom, if there is such a thing as the plant kingdom, okay? But we're different from the world around us. God has actually made us as unique image bearers of his. And what that means for us then is a couple things. One, it means that it's God who gives us identity. God is the one who marks us. God is the one who says, you are defined by me. You've been created by me. You're not just this random thing. You've actually been made specifically, and you've been made in my image. So in Genesis 1.27, a, a key verse when it comes to the you know, identity and the image of God in people, maybe you've heard the term before, omago Dei, right, which is the, we have been made in the image of God. Genesis 1.27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created male and female. He created them. So we have been uniquely made in the image of God, which means that God is the one who actually marks us. God is the one who gives us identity. And we live in a world now where, and all of us are prone to this, where we want to have our identity um, come from other sources. Historically, it's been maybe your family or your country of origin, you know, when it was really nationalized, the world, or becoming more global, and so there's just this big mixing of all the nations. Or maybe it was like your work, you were, you know, you were like a, a leather worker or you were a candle maker, whatever it was, that was your identity. Now in our modern world, those things can still mark us, but what, what's ending up becoming a, a greater force for our definition of identity is actually just... The, the internet, and in, in many cases, I don't know if it's for everybody here, but social media is this driver, okay? Social media is this affirming uh, point in our lives where we put something out or maybe we follow something, and, and that kind of driving force becomes our marker of identity. So Charles Cooley, in his um, book on social media, he says this, we develop our concept of self by watching how other people react to different versions of ourself that we present. So that tends to be how we create our identity. So we, we, f we follow something or we put something out and then what's going to be the reaction to that and that ends up defining our identity for good or for bad. And yet this psalm here is reminding us that actually the one who identifies us, the one who should have the primary voice in our life is actually God because we're made in his image. He is the one who drives that. Listen to the Apostle Paul, and I mean, I wish all of us could have kind of this perspective. Maybe Paul was unique or maybe he was just more mature than a lot of us, but he says this in 1 Corinthians 4, 3. He says, but with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. Paul's saying, like, you know what? What you think about me doesn't really bother me. I don't care. 
He says, I do not even judge myself. Okay? He's like, I don't even, who knows what he would have worn, right? He's like, I just put on whatever I want, okay? Nobody's going to judge me, and I'm not going to judge myself. But then he says this in verse 4. For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. So he's saying, I don't know of anything that should be a, a cause against me, but maybe there is something and I'm just missing it. And then he says, it is the Lord who judges me. Paul says, the bottom line for me is the voice that really matters, the one who really has a say in my life, it's the Lord Jesus. It's the Lord himself. He is the one who is my maker. I'm made in his image. He is the one. And so Paul's perspective here is so healthy for us. And, and just as a practical step, like how do we actually get there where we, where we realize that God is the one who gives us identity? It's that we have to hear more from God than from other sources. We need to listen more to God than we do to those other things, which is usually for most of us, it's like it's our phones, right? It's being in, online or something like that. And um, Andy Crouch in his book, The TechWise Family, I don't know if you've ever read that book before, but he's got like a really simple, a really good practical um, step to take. He calls it, you know, like it's a, a Sabbath kind of an idea, okay? And he says this, one hour a day away from your phone. Okay, one hour a day away from your phone. You might think that's pretty easy, okay? But try one hour a day away from your phone, not sleeping hours, okay? Those don't count. One hour a day away from your phone. One day a week away from your phone. And then one week a year away from your phone, okay? Think about that. Sabbath from the online life so that we can actually hear from God one hour a day, one day a week, one week a year. Now, it's just a suggestion that he has and that I have, but it is a way to hear from God more than the other voices in our life that want to control our identity because God is our maker and we are made in his image. Okay, so the glory of God and the image of God, and lastly, the work of God. Let's look at verse 6 through 8. Verse 6 says this, You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes along the paths of the seas, and then it ends again with that, O oh Lord, our Lord. So David here says, you're made in the image of God, and part of your purpose actually for, for existing is that you would do the work of God. That you would actually have a divine purpose in what you do in this world. And he begins with this idea of stewardship, okay, of taking care of the world around us and and being, in a sense, a caretaker of the world around us. Now, the, the world would actually not see our place in that way. Okay, so I'm reading a book right now on, um, it's like a bunch of stories all related to trees. Okay, 
Don't ask me how I found it. But it's, they're like eight stories, and they all connect to trees in some way. Okay, and as I was reading one of the stories the other day, this line came out to me. It stood out to me. It said, it said this, remember, people aren't the apex species that they think they are. Other creatures, bigger, smaller, slower, faster, older, younger, more powerful, they call the shots. They make the air and they eat the sunlight. Without them, nothing. Okay, and that's kind of the, the natural world perspective that, man, we are people, but we're just one, one cog kind of in this giant planet, and we're maybe not even the most complex like, there's maybe more complex things happening around us. So to think that we're like the pinnacle of everything is a wrong perspective. The Word of God actually reminds us that we were given a specific divine purpose, and that's to steward the planet around us. It's to work with purpose and to care for this planet that God has given to us. Because like I said, this is all that we have at this point in our history. And so the way that we use our resources and the way that we work actually matters. Now, what can happen is, and maybe this is happening in your mind already, is you can get caught on a left or a right side of this, right? Maybe you're thinking, okay, what does it mean? I need to be like an environmentalist, and I just care about the environment, and that's all that matters, and, you know, I'm going to go chain myself to a tree now. Is that what I'm supposed to do? Or maybe you're just on the other side and you're like, you know what, we can just use the resources. Um, maybe you've heard or maybe you've even said, you know, it's all going to burn. It doesn't matter anyways, right? So just use it all up and trash it. We'll be dead and gone, whatever. Our, our great, great grandkids can figure out the solution. The left side or the right side, or for, I guess it would be the left side and the right side for you. The Word of God actually gives us a spot right in the middle. The Word of God says that you are to use the land around you. You're to use the resources around you. But you're to steward them well. Brueggemann, in his commentary on Psalms, said it so well. And so I included it in the slide there so you could see this. But he says this. It is naive to say, or it is not naive to say that the first step in addressing the environment crisis is to praise God. For praising God is that act of worship and mode of existence that reminds us that we human beings are not free to do whatever our science and technology enables us to do. Praise flies in the face of our culture's tendency to unrestrained exploitation. So Brueggemann's saying, listen, praising God, understanding the glory of God is actually a starting point for Care of the planet. Care of the resources around us. Because our tendency as people is toward what he's saying is unrestrained exploitation. Just more, better, use more, buy more, get this toy, get that, another TV, another whatever. Just keep adding, adding, adding. That is the natural tendency of the mind. But when we have the psalmist perspective on us as image bearers of God, and on the world around us as a resource that is a gift from God that actually reflects his glory, then praise is actually the response of the believer to, to care for and to steward well the planet around us. So we're not just a let's burn this thing, but we're also not just like chain ourselves to trees. We're in the middle where we're saying God has given this beautiful thing to us, this planet, and we want to steward it well.
So we have divine purpose. So then when we actually do the work that God has called us to do, whatever it is, whether it's farming or whether it's coding or whether it's making sandwiches for our family or whether it's a, you know, being an administrator, whatever it is, we actually discover that God's design purpose, sorry, his divine purpose for us is to live out his glory through the work that we do. So through all the things that we're involved in, the, the work of our hands, and you can see the language there is mirrored, right? Look at, it says that in verse 3, the work of God's fingers, okay, it's actually trying to put into uh, words for us to understand that God, when he made the universe as like a, an, a worker or an artist, is doing these things, and now it's saying that we are given dominion to work with our hands, so we are actually, when we work, when we do the work that God has called us to, we mirror what God is doing. We follow God's example by doing good work, by doing making things, by creating things, by working with people. We're actually following God's example and we glorify him through that process. And what happens then is that we discover on that process of doing the work. So, so maybe we're like, waiting for some sort of great ministry, or maybe we're waiting for some sort of like calling. What's that calling going to be? And what we discover through a psalm like Psalm 8 is that for most of us, there's some sort of divine calling in the work that God has given to us. There's a divine purpose in what we're doing. And God actually through those purposes is opening doors of opportunity around us. And the question is for us, are we awake to those opportunities? Are we aware of what God is doing? The, the fact of the matter is when we go to do something, whether we start something or are in the middle of something or finish it, God is already in that place. God has been there. And so for us as believers, we need to become awake to the work of God in and through the work that we do. Eric Liddell, who is a uh, runner and he ran in the Olympics. And this is a quote from Chariots of Fire, the movie. I don't know if he, really, if, if he said this or if it's just in the movie, but it sounds good. He says, when I run, I feel God's pleasure. When I run, I feel God's pleasure. You may not feel God's pleasure when you're doing your job, or maybe you do, okay, whatever your job is. Maybe you actually feel the pleasure of God. But when we begin to understand that God has divine purpose for us in the work that we do, in the stewarding of the land, you know, whatever it is that God has called us to do, we discover that whatever we do, like 1 Corinthians 10 says, whatever we do, whether we eat, whether we drink, whether we work, we do it all to the glory of God. All to the glory of God. So let's close our sermon here again. Verse 9, just one more time, says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This psalm in many ways is a foundational psalm. It is like the foundation of a house. Okay, when we moved into our house, what we discovered was there was a crack in the foundation. Just one little hairline crack. Okay, we had to call the crack specialists. I don't know if anybody's had them come out, right? come and drill a hole in, and they fill it in, okay? Because even one little crack in the foundation is going to cause problems. Moisture can get in there, or, you know, more cracks can follow. This psalm, in so many ways, 
is, it's so big for us. It is, the, it is a foundation for us. And if our foundation of the glory of God and people being made in the image of God and the, the divine purpose that we have as doing the work of God, if those things are not clear in our minds, man, there's going to be some problems coming out in our lives. Because we won't understand at a foundational level what God is doing around us. So we don't leave a service like this or probably at any point in our lives saying, got it down, foundation is clear, everything is set. But what we do is we come back to this psalm regularly and we say, okay, God, what does that mean again? I'm made in your image. You're the one who identifies me. And the work that I do, whatever it is, you have purpose in it and you're working around me. So open my eyes to what you're doing. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this psalm. Thank you for the note of praise and the fact that we are called to worship and glorify you. Thank you, Lord, that you are a magnificent God that deserves all the worship. And um, We just pray, Lord, that you would teach us again and again how to do that and to acknowledge your hand in our lives um, each day. In Jesus' name, amen.